What is up, guys? Welcome back, and I'm excited to introduce our guest for today. He is none other than national debate champion, former, uh, I'm going to just say go roll tight or whatever shit. Uh, I think he graduated high school a couple of years ago and then graduated college in like two years. Welcome, David Zell. How you doing, man? <laughs> you did not that was do a, David justice. That, that was, was an the interesting most, introduction. That was a, a lot of That was fucking terrible. Uh, David, <laughs> I, I want to tell a story. The first time I met David, he did a backflip and then out of nowhere, what, totally unexpected, and then punched a hole through a wall next to us and pulled a physical Bitcoin out of the wall. And I was like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, that's not a thing. Bitcoin is a digital currency. And he did it anyway. David, you've done an incredible amount in the space. I would love to hear your uh, summary of who you are, what you're about, and why what you're doing is important. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm David. Um, I first started using Bitcoin when I was in seventh grade. So that was like, uh, I guess, fall of 2013. Um, wasn't until later uh, that I kind of started getting more uh, into the space and like actually learning about Bitcoin. I was actually just using it uh, for a while. Uh, but since then, uh, I've you know, done different things. Definitely a cypherpunk kind of at my core. Uh, and I spent a while uh, working to sort of derail uh, capital market, uh, sort of private market investment into private prisons. So I, I led an organization for a little over a year that disrupted about $3 billion worth of uh, private prison financing. Uh, and then I started moving into like Bitcoin policy work. So I worked as the head of policy at Bitcoin Magazine for like nine or 10 months, and then left there to start uh, BPI, which is the nonprofit think tank uh, called the Bitcoin Policy Institute. And we do a lot of cool research on uh, Bitcoin. You know, we also do uh, research on sort of other things as they're relevant to Bitcoin. So we talk about stable coins. We compare proof of work and proof of stake. Uh, and most of our work is centered around uh, sort of educating uh, lawmakers in, in DC. So uh, yeah, that's me. You also did an amazing job uh, hosting one of my favorite panels at Bitcoin 2022 with Andrew Yang, Joe Jorgensen, Alan Farrington, and incredible journalist Glenn Greenwald on yeah. kind of overcoming idea inertia. Mm -hmm. You've uh, you've done a bunch of great yeah, stuff. Yeah, it was a ton of fun. Uh, meeting Glenn uh, was was fun. Meeting Andrew Yang was fun. Uh, and Joe is just so cool. She is like the, I know like people, it's a cringe thing to say, but Joe Jorgensen is the least politician-y of any politician that I've I've met. Like Joe instantly kind of just feels like a, a friend. So uh, yeah, shout out to Joe Jorgensen. She's pretty cool. Yep, yep. I, I could not agree with you more. I want to talk about your the work that you're doing right now around the financial inclusion letter that you guys just put out. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about what that is, why it's important and what you're trying to achieve with that letter? Yeah, sure. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, a group of global technology experts, uh, notably like uh, functionally none of them, uh, you know, used a currency other than the dollar or the Euro wrote a letter to Congress, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of in support of what they called responsible crypto policy. And in this letter, uh, they just say a bunch of things that aren't true. Uh, the notable kind of claims, however, uh, at least the ones that stood out to me, uh, were sort of the arguments that, that Bitcoin had no real world utility, that, you know, it was a solution in search of problems. 
Um, and, you know, and their, their criticisms were about crypto overall. And so it was weird because in some, some ways I read that letter and, you know, agreed with a lot of it um, in reference to like the crypto industry o- overall, uh, which is certainly like rife with scams and are worth uh, denouncing. Uh, but in their letter, they kind of just ignore uh, the sort of lives of like basically half the world who live either under authoritarianism, uh, which is, you know, 56% of people uh, on the entire planet live under authoritarianism. A billion people live with like massive inflation and, and many of them hyperinflation. And it's here uh, sort of at the edges of uh, uh, the, the, the sort of modern connected globalized world uh, where people that are living lives that most of us in the West could never imagine use Bitcoin not to speculate, uh, but as a critical tool. And so uh, when this letter came out, for their claims to be true, these these global tech experts, uh, you have to kind of just accept that uh, the stories that, you know, for example, Alex Gladstein has worked for several years now to shed light on just like aren't true or that those people aren't real. To say that Bitcoin is a solution in search of problems is to tell these people that their problems aren't real, that they're not real. Um, and so I thought it was really important to make that obvious. So uh, I they, they, they registered the domain uh, concerned.tech. So I registered the domain uh, financialinclusion.tech. And I encourage anyone who's watching this to go to that website, because when you do, you'll find... Um, some samplings of, of mainstream news articles that have referenced uh, Bitcoin's role uh, for those facing, you know, authoritarianism or economic crisis. And then you'll find a letter uh, which was uh, sent to Congress uh, that sort of details uh, the experiences of the authors. Um, so it was signed by 21 human rights activists uh, from 20 different countries, uh, including uh, Gary Kasparov, you know, uh, chess grandmaster, uh, Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation, uh, Farida, uh, Yemni, like all, all of these uh, incredible activists from all over the world uh, wrote this powerful, powerful letter. Um, and so we, I, I just sort of played the role in facilitating it. Uh, so, you know, made the website and, uh, you know, had our, our team at BPI make sure that it got into the right hands um, and, and sort of coordinated that. But this is really about the 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 authors of the letter. Um, you know, I, I coordinated it, but uh, it would be far more powerful for someone watching this to just go read the letter instead of hear me talk about it. Because the way that they explain how Bitcoin has, you know, it hasn't been a meme, it hasn't been, a, 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 you know, a speculative vehicle. It has worked when like nothing else did. And, you know, there's there's one line uh, that I, I think is worth highlighting from this letter. I mean, they're all like bangers and it's an incredible uh, 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 sort of testament to Bitcoin's power and prominence. Um, but they say to most in the West, the horrors of monetary colonialism, misogynist financial policy, frozen bank accounts, exploitative remittance companies and an inability to connect to the global economy may be distant ideas to most of us and our communities and to the majority of people worldwide, they are daily realities. If there were, quote, far better solutions already in use to overcome these challenges, we would know. And yeah, it's just uh, everyone should read it. Very powerful stuff. I mean, 
especially in this country and, and most Western developed nations, we have the privilege, I think, of not really having to give thought or consideration to our money, um, where it comes and how we're really using it. Talk to us a little bit about some of the conversations that you've been having with the U.S. government around the necessity for Bitcoin to exist in an economy that maybe has a more functioning currency or money. Yeah. Um, wait, sorry. Is the question about uh, sort of conversations What's your conversation about financial... with U.S. congressmen people around Bitcoin? Yeah. So they're, they're pretty far ranging. Um, I would say a couple of baskets of conversations are, are most common. Uh, so I guess uh, to start, um, I think there are elevating national security concerns, um, particularly in the uh, like Biden administration uh, about Bitcoin. Um, you know, the sort of climate uh, like ESG stuff gets a lot of attention and is is certainly a, a place where regulators and policymakers are, are looking. Um, but in a lot of ways, I think national security drives tech policy. Um, and and Bitcoin is just a policy issue. Uh, it's it's really no different uh, uh, from a regulatory or policy standpoint. Uh, well, I take that back. From a tech policy perspective, it's it's just not that different, right? You understand what the internet is. You can explain to someone that Bitcoin is like you know the internet of money. And and in these tech policy conversations, historically, national security has been like a driving piece. So I'll give a quick example. Uh, the debate around uh, sort of breaking up big tech. Uh, so our antitrust laws in the United States are super old. Uh, they were written to apply to uh, uh, sort of monopolies of supply, like think sort of the oil barons of like the early 1900s. Uh, and, and so many have argued that what we experience now are not monopolies of uh, supply, but are monopolies of demand. So think of companies like Amazon who have better data than anyone else. And they're able to get companies, uh, uh, they're able to sort of leverage that data to get more users, to get more data, to get more users, et cetera. So it's a big problem. People are concerned about it. There've been proposals to break up big tech, particularly from, you know, like people like Elizabeth Warren. Um, I think a lot of the reason those conversations have flatlined is because sort of uh, grand strategists and national security thought leaders recognized that to compete with China, uh, on on issues like AI, uh, we needed uh, uh, data, and, and that these corporations being sort of together and not split apart uh, allowed us to get better data sets to train AI. And so some of those conversations uh, about all the benefits of breaking up big tech kind of just died down. And I tell that story not to go off on a tangent, but to kind of reinforce this idea that there are pros and cons of technologies, but ultimately, if the government comes to believe that a technology is sort of damaging to its uh, sort of domestic status or international stature, that's going to sort of outweigh everything else. It's like concern number one. Uh, and so this first basket of conversations that, you know, I have with policymakers and that our team does uh, is to sort of first address some of these concerns about like Bitcoin being used to evade sanctions, which is just kind of... Uh, not, not not really the case, um, or Bitcoin uh, being used to elicit uh, or sort of to facilitate like ransomware or cybercrime, which you know, has some truth to it. Um, but mostly we try to tell a different story, uh, one that's backed by data and backed by observations about Bitcoin over the past few years. And that story is that 
you know, Bitcoin, like the internet, uh, can be a really powerful tool for spreading democratic values. Um, you know, we we sort of realized uh, over the last 15 years that giving people access to sort of the freedom of information, the ability to uh, find and post and communicate to anyone anywhere in the world is this sort of inherently like democratic, like uh, sort of classical liberal value. Um, you know, we saw the Arab Spring in part uh, uh, caused by social media. And while there are sort of drawbacks and the, you know, the internet has also been used as a tool to control and surveil, uh, there's a reason the State Department sort of funds the development of internet uh, overseas, because generally we think that uh, the free flow of information is good. So we say the free flow of value is good in that same way. Um, and so we talk about sort of uh, China's CBDC uh, sort of rollout. We talk about uh, sort of people in emerging markets who like in this letter, uh, so like the authors in this letter, uh, lack alternatives to the existing financial system. And if the choice is between, you know, people across the world where SWIFT is is sort of failing. I mean, you see correspondent banking relationships in like Africa and the M Middle East and South America down like, you know, 20% over the last 10 years, uh, where, where people are sort of losing access to uh, the legacy rails of finance. It's far better for America that they join an open, neutral monetary network, as opposed to a closed authoritarian monetary network that allows, you know, Xi Jinping to uh, internationalize his rule of law. Uh, and in the same way that, you know, America can sit here in the West and say, uh, well, this transaction that occurred, you know, thousands of miles away in another country is illicit finance or terrorism. And because we control the rails of finance, we're going to censor that transaction. There's nothing stopping Xi Jinping from doing the same thing. And so that presents a national security threat to the United States and one that Bitcoin like very clearly solves. Uh, so a lot of conversations uh, happening about national security, uh, energy and the environment, of course, um, we sent um, a 10 page uh, sort of uh, uh, research report to the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, uh, where we kind of first and principally make the argument that uh, a conversation about Bitcoin's negative environmental impacts has to be framed by uh, a discussion of its benefits. You know, otherwise you're just sort of set up to get a predetermined conclusion. I mean, if you look at the negative externalities of anything in a vacuum, you're never going to like come to any conclusion other than that, that then that thing is bad. Um, so you have to start by understanding Bitcoin's social value, like why a world with Bitcoin is better than a world without it. Then you can get into the energy conversation. And, and there we sort of do an analysis of, you know, what is Bitcoin's actual environmental impact and, and sort of conclude by going through uh, the ways in which Bitcoin may actually be quite good um, uh, for not only the environment, uh, but also the stability of grids and, and U.S. energy independence. So that was written by uh, two of our, our sort of climate people at, at BPI. And then uh, Troy Cross and, and Margot Pace, shout out to them. Uh, and, and those, I would say, are kind of the two most important conversations that are going on now is, is Bitcoin's impact on the environment and, and sort of Bitcoin's impact on the U.S. sort of relative strategic position. Um, so, yeah.
Seems like they're keep, keeping you very busy. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot to unpack there. Without getting too into the weeds to start, give us just maybe like the surface level of, you know, we see and hear a lot of the FUD that comes out of the mainstream media, and I'm sure this is a lot of what you spend your time on as, as you shared. Um, Bitcoiner's favorite person, Elizabeth Warren, seems to be at the forefront of your mind. I mean, let's just, let's just start there. Like, you're talking to Lizzie Warren. What is the first thing that you're finally telling her so she can wrap her mind around the fact that she's an idiot? Well, I probably wouldn't uh, insult her, uh, you know, <laughs> for sure. Uh, it seems, seems like a Pussy. bad strategy. I don't know what I would say to Elizabeth Warren. Um, I think I'd start by having her read this letter, actually. Um, I couldn't think of a better sort of primer for the type of conversation that I would want to have. Um, y- you know, this idea of, of sort of convincing like individual politicians about, you know, when someone has kind of branded themselves around a policy issue, I think the probability of them just sort of it's tough to kind of 180 uh, and save face at the same time. You know, it's one thing if you made some negative comments and change your mind, but Elizabeth Warren has positioned herself as a crusader against Bitcoin. And uh, without kind of getting too speculative, uh, there are reasons that I would be pessimistic uh, on face about, you know, my or anyone else's ability to get through to her. Um, I think the main thing would be read this letter and then second is understand that there is a difference between crypto and Bitcoin. And we cannot let conversations uh, that are adjacent to Bitcoin, right? Like whether it's stable coins, uh, risks to the financial system, or whether it's, you know, crypto Ponzi's with like, you know, digital yams that you get like 600% APY on until all your money's gone because it was a Ponzi. Like those are problems uh, the, the latter are uh and, and the former is a reasonable conversation to have uh but i think that we are kind of on a, a precipice um, and i don't know if i'd say this all to elizabeth warren but just kind of context here i, I think that we are on a, a sort of precipice of deciding and locking in which rights uh that are sort of de facto um, because of the legacy world, do we take into the world that's like radically changed by technology? And cash is just like the obvious example of that. Like, you know, no, nowhere do you have a right to cash, but the constitution was written in, in a world in which nothing other than cash realistically was conceivable or something quite like it. And proposals for digital currencies are, are happening like now and are rolling out now. And I'm really worried about the authoritarian uh, sort of ends of, of, of those proposals and think a an insufficient amount of public attention and thought has gone into uh, what sort of principles and technical uh, opportunities and limitations do we bake into, um, you know, a, a new sort of global monetary network. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's just, I, I think it would be, look, this is being used by tens of millions of people across the world and, you know, that's that's not you, you can just read these people tell you their stories and second is that you know, you need to think about bitcoin differently um because when i think about our ability to have an open permissionless like credibly neutral um monetary protocol which are things that are kind of just i think should be important to people i don't think we have a better shot at it right now than, than bitcoin um so yeah this is useful for real people all over the world and bitcoin is not crypto 
those would be the two things I'd try to get across. What is up, my Bitcoin plebs? Today's podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, BitMEX. If you've been in the Bitcoin space for longer than a week, then you probably already know BitMEX as the OG crypto derivatives exchange and one of the biggest supporters of the Bitcoin space in the last decade. But what you might not know is that BitMEX is launching a brand new spot exchange on the 17th of May to easily buy and sell Bitcoin and crypto. To celebrate, they're giving away $1 million in crypto to spot traders over the next few months, and they want you to be a part of it. The Bitcoin Magazine crew had the privilege of meeting their team a few months back, and they think that this is the start of something special for BitMEX and their users. Sign up at BitMEX.com today to catch a slice of the $1 million in crypto giveaway, and stay tuned to our podcast for future product offerings from their team. Again, don't miss out on the giveaway. Free sats are the best sats, so sign up today at BitMEX.com. So this is interesting because we were talking before you jumped on about this. I made the claim that, you know, when we talk about a two-party system, that uh, really we're kind of operating in a world where there are Democrats and Republicans can basically be said to be kind of the Washington generals and the Harlem Globetrotters, and then they just switch every four to eight years. And that there are it's, it's very difficult to engage openly and honestly with these entities like Elizabeth Warren uh, and, and many others on both sides of the aisle, uh, because really the things that they are saying are not actually representative of what they believe or effectively communicating kind of why they are representing the things that they're representing. So my question to you is this, how, like, how do you think about, first of all, do you agree that there is that disconnect that, um, you know, someone like Elizabeth Warren is never going to engage openly and honestly with this awesome letter that you have, you know, helped put together because really she doesn't care what it says or what the objective truth is. It's about, you know, pushing an agenda that she is specifically interested in. Um, so what do you think about kind of that? Do you think that's true? And second, kind of how do you, if you do, how do you engage with that and, operate in a world where that's kind of what's going on yeah i don't know um who knows some people are persuadable some aren't um but i think that uh, people uh in the aggregate are persuadable um and uh i i think that some of this you do to try to you know, convince people or, or you know educate people uh, uh on that real individual level uh but whether or not Elizabeth Warren is receptive to the truth about Bitcoin. I think her supporters can be, and you know that, that that's ultimately like what, what sort of matters here. Uh, it, you can change someone's incentives um, if you change people's hearts and minds, and I, I just think that when more people hear stories about Bitcoin that are not just designed to make the reader hate it, um, which is just like most of the content that people consume about about Bitcoin, uh, that process can can happen. And so I'm optimistic on public opinion on on, on Bitcoin. Um, I don't really know many people who've spent a meaningful amount of time looking into Bitcoin that have uh, come away from it, um, at the very least, not like optimistic. Uh, and, 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 you know, thinking that this is cool and, and probably good. 
So yeah, I think over time, more people will be pro Bitcoin because people will be, you know, it'll be, they'll be using it, right? It'll be like, you know, being pro TCP IP. Like no one walks around with like, you know, internet protocol bumper stickers on their car. It's just like the backbone of, of the internet. And so I think if, you know, at least my personal prediction uh, plays out, I think uh, uh, there will be a substantial increase in the number of people that are you know, using Bitcoin in their day-to-day -day lives, whether or not they sort of see it or interact with it. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think we have kind of this window, basically, where no one really knows what's happening. And there are so many sort of reasons to be scared. And you, and you can look to you know, sort of the, uh, this is the same stuff as like the Clipper debate in like the 90s. Like, you know, the sort of early cypherpunks were writing about the same thing. You know, they're talking about crypto, not like cryptocurrencies, but, you know, crypto as in cryptography. And, you know, it was just really obvious. Like, what are the arguments against it? They're going to say that crypto enables money laundering, financial crime, uh, that it is uh, uh, bad for national security. Like, uh, the, the world is definitely changed by innovations like cryptography and innovations like Bitcoin. It was also changed by innovations like the internet and innovations like the printing press. And some of these innovations fundamentally restructured what distribution of power between a sovereign and a people uh, were, were sort of possible. It was really easy to censor information um, when no one could print their own. The Catholic Church in the West controlled all of what was printed and, and essentially all of what was said and essentially all of what was thought. Um, and then the printing press comes and the, the genie is just sort of out of the bottle. Um, we adapt and we we readjust. Um, and of course, the people that, you know, get the printing press dropped on them when they benefited from people not being able to print their own information weren't too happy about it. But, you know, the, the anti-printing press moment, you know, didn't last very long because it, it just made the world better. And so I, I kind of just look at it on this like long arc of like, we will probably continue to create technologies that fundamentally restructure what distributions of power are possible. And uh, I think technologies that tend toward openness, that tend toward uh, protecting and sort of treating everyone the same, which Bitcoin does. It's the same rules for everyone and anyone can use it. In the same way that, you know, a printing press can be, it could be built uh, by, by anyone and used by anyone and the internet could be built and used by anyone. So, yeah, I expect the sort of anti-Bitcoin stuff to be short-lived and who knows how it plays out. Um, there are lots of scenarios. Uh, uh, don't know if we have the time to get into all of that, but uh, yeah, I, I do expect this stuff to you know, be relatively short lived. But right now it's just checking all of these boxes. It's like if you're a policymaker in the United States in 2022 and you hear that something is bad for the environment, that it's threatening our carbon, you know, goals, that it's horrible for national security. Like, yeah. And, you know, you kind of maybe believe in, in prop confidence that, you know, this sort of competes with the dollar. Um, it's kind of a recipe to be like hated by Washington. Um, I don't think it needs to be that way because I don't think that that threat is real. I don't think the threat is the same as some of the critics think. Um, it will and, and has restructured what is possible with, with money. Um, but I don't think that's a negative thing for the United States. I think it is uh, sort of stands in a legacy of innovations that made human flourishing like 
more readily available that that led to information and speech being more accessible and not controlled and so i do just see this as like the long arc of like our speech getting freer uh and our ability to share our ideas and to you know interact with each other uh, regardless of physical proximity uh uh you know, happening more and more. And, and I think that's just obviously good. Peace muted. So I'm going to, I mean, to be honest, I want to take the conversation somewhere else. So P, if you have something else on, in this line of thought, no, no, go for it. Um, a big part of this conversation we've been having to you. And I, I say and present this question, not as necessarily my opinion or belief, but just to Zell, you can't do that guy. I'm so sorry. This fucking guy. <laughs> Um, this is not my perspective, not my belief. I just want to, you know, play a little game with you. So a lot of this conversation has been around the importance of Bitcoin, not for Americans, but for, you know, people in developing and countries that need this. What though, like why would Americans who are very much anti-American interventionism and feel as though American interventionism has caused so many of our problems back here, why do we feel like we need to continue a narrative around this digital imaginary fake money that you're saying is important for people in another country, but like we don't necessarily need it. So like, why do we even need to have this conversation? So talk yeah. to us about that thought process. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, you know, the United States is a policy leader and other countries around the world look to America when they try to make decisions at home. So the decisions we make here, that our leaders make here, have international implications, uh, uh, often in negative ways. Um, but you know, the the main message is that we have a responsibility to set a a global precedent. Otherwise, uh, you know, we are responsible for uh, uh, taking away a tool that so many have said is is just indispensable. Um, to, in order to sort of carry out their their daily lives i mean i've not been convinced to care about bitcoin as a american whole like whole heart kidding obviously you look so serious right now it's angry at me. <laughs> no 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 i'm not sorry he's good. just, just kind of on side staring like, off fuck yeah get off facebook man i'm not on facebook i'm just uh i'm just kind of listening like let's let's talk a little bit about you know bitcoin has become a talking point for a lot of politicians we saw it in the last uh most recent election there were a few different uh bitcoin or pro bitcoin politicians running in races unfortunately none of them were able to i think win correct me if i'm wrong on that cell but um what are your expectations with the midterms coming up and we have 2024 what role if any will bitcoin have and I want to first start Bitcoin and yes, I'm going to say the bad word. So P you can bleep it out, but what role will crypto also have? Cause I feel like the two unfortunately will be tied together on the national political stage. It's a great question. Um, so far crypto political efforts have far outpaced Bitcoin specific political efforts. Uh, you know, SBF, uh, GMI pack, there's been sort of millions and millions of dollars, uh, committed, uh, 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 to political spending, although it's it's worth noting that uh, that, that Sam's political spending is uh, uh, entirely based on candidates' sort of stances on things like pandemic preparedness, and uh, you know he wants to sort of bring the effective altruism lens to public policy. Um, 
so you know I don't, I don't know if that counts as crypto political spending but uh yeah crypto political spending has far outpaced bitcoin political spending uh you know that's just a fact like uh it, the gap is you know i mean you know it, it was massive I'm like i don't i don't even think erica rhodes got more than like a bitcoin like donated to her um maybe right around that so uh what impact will it play on the elections uh in a bear market probably not much um like yeah i don't know i think when bitcoin is like pumping and you know you're like a politician and you're like holy shit like you know 40 million americans own this and they love it because you know it, it's made them wealthy uh you know that's like a reason to kind of go to a meeting it's a reason to talk to people it's a reason to maybe integrate it into your campaign particularly if you're uh uh someone like for example john ossoff like in georgia i think would be a really reasonable person to like go pro bitcoin because like he's not going to lose anyone on the left and you know he might be able to pick up some like libertarians on the right who would have voted for someone else so there are these like sort of instances where i think you know being pro bitcoin could be like relatively strategic for your your campaign um and overall i think like good but um from from a tactical perspective but i i don't know what impact uh, sort of bitcoin is going to have on the uh, on the midterms um at, at this point um it, i would say the biggest impact has been um more kind of about the Overton window of, of, of Bitcoin. Like it's become a public policy issue. It's become a public policy debate um, in, in Washington. Um, so that shift is monumental, uh, though its impact is difficult to assess or foresee. Um, but it is notable uh, that, you know, this time around, we had people, you know, running for the highest elected offices in the, in the United States talking about Bitcoin, um, whether it was, you know, that they loved it or whether it was that they hated it. You know, I also think we saw this cycle, uh, a politicization of Bitcoin that I found uh, like reprehensible um, and, and just stupid. Um, Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, Satoshi said it. Like Satoshi said, all you need to you sort of to know about this, that you know, Bitcoin's best strategy was just to like stay low key and just like exist. And uh, uh, when or if a sort of escape velocity moment happens, like I think it was inevitable that Bitcoin became a public policy issue. What was not inevitable uh, was that it so quickly became like a a start. It started to sort of become a left versus right thing. Um, you know, Tucker Carlson. And it's just like obvious. Like I, people talk about, you know, Bitcoin is bipartisan. Bitcoin is bipartisan. It's not like a magic enchantment. Like if you just say that enough times, it becomes bipartisan. Like that, that's not how it works. Like the reality is that, you know, uh, uh, Bitcoin became politicized. This isn't to say that, you know, this isn't to talk about sort of partisan politics. Like I don't, it's not the point. Uh, but the point is that, you know, it's very clear that the Republicans, you know, became pro-Bitcoin and the Democrats became, you know, anti-Bitcoin. Um, I think that it'll be interesting to see whether in a bear market, when discussions about Bitcoin maybe start to change in, in sort of shape and tenor, whether that politicization sticks. Um, because I think it's just net bad that Bitcoin is is partisan. It's just a, it makes it a bad environment to do Bitcoin things in the United States, to like be a builder or an innovator. 
if you're having to kind of hold your breath every four years to see which party wins, uh, and, and and that sort of shift of the the, the pendulum could fundamentally change your business or, or put you out of business, why would you be here? Um, and so I, I think that Bitcoin benefits from exposure to the U.S. capital markets. It benefits from exposure to our rule of law. You know, yeah, I think politicization jeopardizes, uh, you know, the lives of U.S. Bitcoiners. Like the, the network will, you know, be fine regardless of what happens in the U.S. But uh, I think it threatens Bitcoin users and Bitcoiners when when Bitcoin becomes politicized. So those are, I think, were the two kind of most notable things. I would say from the Bitcoin side, it wasn't really campaign finance as much as it was shifting the Overton window, sort of the bounds of dialogue. Um, and unfortunately, um, sort of sowing the seeds of, of Bitcoin becoming kind of a one party issue, uh, which I think is, you know, just uh, not a good outcome. No. And there's a very interesting thing you've actually brought up that maybe I've just been naive. Thankfully, politics have not been on the forefront of my mind because people like you and good. Grant exist. So thank you for for giving me some peace and, and tranquility in my life or returning the peace and tranquility to my life. But the idea of like, what actually does Bitcoin's role look like in the political sphere sphere in a bear market is actually super, super interesting because you're right. When the price is pumping, everyone and their mother is talking about it. But when it's down, everyone just wants to like kick us and be like, Oh, you do it. I got so many texts over the last week of like, are you alive? Like, I just need to make sure. And, deactivating my or deleting my Instagram account or the app off my phone and then not being on Instagram. Apparently people really thought that I had done something to myself. So I'm alive. I'm okay, guys. Bitcoin's price. I want it to go lower. Um, but I want to now play the inverse of this. So we've seen a lot of more so on the left, this attack on Bitcoin through an ESG narrative. Do you think those types of attacks and that narrative will continue in a bear market or will the bear market also help take some of that negative pressure? And I think pressure is the wrong word I'm choosing, but I'm just going to stick with it. But that negative pressure, negative perspective around Bitcoin, can that help? Can that dissipate during the bear market if no one's talking about it? Or will it still be a let's kick them while they're down situation in your opinion? I think bear markets are where new narratives are born. And I think the bear markets make Bitcoin maximalists, like historically. So for me, uh, the biggest difference in the bear market is I think it's just going to be quieter. Um, and I think that that sort of experience of watching uh, Celsius, 3AC, and, you know, this whole fallout, um, and then who knows how, how far or wide, you know, contagion in the markets, like, spread, I, I don't really know. Uh, but what I do know is that in times like this, it is much easier to make that second point that I said that I would make to Elizabeth Warren in a hypothetical conversation, which is that, you know, I, I, it's not to say that everything that isn't Bitcoin is, is a scam. I don't think that's true. Um, but it's to say that like the overwhelming majority of things that aren't Bitcoin are scams. And it is very important from a policy perspective uh, to recognize that Bitcoin is sort of different enough, both in its design and its its function uh, and its sort of aspiration that, that it warrants uh, kind of 
focused consideration. Like it warrants being sort of separated from everything else. Um, uh, and I don't necessarily mean that like, you know, laws will start like that. that that's not necessary. I mean, this stuff's all kind of regulated together, but the conversations around Bitcoin cannot be properly had if they're in the context of conversations about, about crypto. Um, so yeah, I think it's a good time to make that point. Uh, because when everything is pumping and, you know, you have millions of dollars coming into D.C. from, you know, with the VC money and all of this stuff, like, uh, I'm sure that being a staffer, you know, in the last year since the infrastructure bill uh, has been very interesting hearing, like, all of these people who, you know, are saying Web3 is the future, this is the future, you know, proof of stake is the future, and then the, oh, no, Bitcoin is the future, like, yeah, I don't know. I think the bear market is going to flush out a lot of excess and a lot of grift. And I think it'll present a clearer picture of this point. Um, so, yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, again, I think like campaign financing is unlikely to uh, uh, be kind of a factor from the from the from the Bitcoin side. I think it still probably will be and has been from the, the crypto side of things. So. Yeah, bear markets. Bear markets make maximalists. Bear markets. Yeah, um, like I saw someone in the chat said, you know, uh, you get the moon boys who are only here for NGU. Yeah, exactly. Like it's just easier to like talk about Bitcoin when you know it's quieter, and I think that's true in in BC, uh, in in, uh, in in DC as well. Sorry, one thing I want to ask you about is, you know, Putin just gave this speech, uh, I think five or six days ago. And he said a lot of interesting things that um, relate to the kind of international monetary policy and have implications for Bitcoin. I wanted to go through some of the um, the highlights from that and sort of get your thoughts. So uh, he talked about the freezing of uh, FX reserves and assets and said the very principles of the global economic systems have taken a blow. Fundamental business notions as business reputation, the inviability of property and trust in global currencies have been seriously damaged. He also said, when I spoke at Davos Forum a few uh, year and a half ago, I also stressed that the era of a unipolar world has come, unipolar world order, excuse me, has come to an end. Um, I want to start with this as there's no way around it. This era has ended despite all the attempts to maintain and preserve it at all costs. Yeah, sure. I can comment on that. Um, yeah, sort of two pieces, I think, uh, immediately worth noting. Um, uh, the first is, you know, it's a difference of opinion, man, uh, about sort of the, the principles of the monetary order. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sure if you're principles of the monetary order include, you know, you not being the subject to like nation state asset seizure, uh, like, yeah, it's a violation, but I, you know, there are people doing the seizing and freezing uh, would say that it's, it's not violating the the, the the principles of the global monetary order or whatever that like word salad is. It's all socially constructed, like, you know, it, and, you know, that's, uh, yeah, sure. Of course, Putin is going to say that. Of course, America is going to say the exact opposite. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if there's much just getting into getting into it there. As far as the, you know, unipolar world, you know, I would contest that we we really have a unipolar world. Um, I think that was more sort of characteristic of like uh, uh, America after World War II. Um, but but I, I think it is fair to say that we are in a multipolar uh, world and have been for for some time. Um, 
Now, I think what, what he's really sort of referring to is is less uh, sort of international like polarity, which is just a you know, made up political science word like you know, multipolar world, everyone shares power, uh, bipolar world, think like uh, uh, whatever, uh, whatever was sort of the Cold War, you know, you got like two big powers and everyone else kind of orbiting around them and a multi world in which there are relative differences in power but there's not like one single just dominant force and i think there's arguments to be made that we're still in a unipolar world uh there are arguments to be made that we are in a multipolar world um i think what he's sort of getting at though is that what the war in in ukraine has done and uh uh what these sort of sanctions have have kind of concretized is a bifurcation of the international financial system. Um, but this is a story that began uh, a long time ago. Um, it didn't happen overnight. I actually saw someone in the, the, the live stream chat like earlier on in the show talking about like BRICS. Um, and and you know, I, I don't can't remember what that was in reference to, but uh, you, know, you have to sort of start there. You know, uh, Brazil, Russia, you know, India, China, et cetera. There has sort of been the building of parallel institutions to those in the West for quite some time. So I think it was 2012 when China launched the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is essentially um, just a competitor to the IMF, who for you know decades uh, sort of stood alone in in terms of the uh, it was a monopoly. Like it, it had a it sort of had a, a particular mission and charter uh, that, that no one else was fulfilling. Then the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank happens, uh, and they start saying, whereas the IMF had told all of these nations that wanted to get money, you have to jump through, I mean, literally, I think the average number of conditionalities to those loans is like 430. So you have to jump through 400-something hoops to get our money. China just started handing out money like for free. Um, no strings attached, basically. Well strings attached, but not in the same way as, as sort of the conditionalities on IMF. Invisible strings. Well, and so what happened is the average number of IMF uh, loan conditionalities like declined, I think, into like you know, the 30s now. And so essentially, you know, you saw like a monopoly transform into a market where competing institutions were forced to kind of outperform the other uh, in order to, uh, uh, you know, fulfill their mission. Uh, and I think what Putin is referring to here is a, a sort of continuation of that trend where uh, we are changing from a world in which the rails of globalization, uh, like finance and the internet, uh, uh, are all held by the West, uh, that new systems uh, that serve the same function are, are being built uh, uh, by sort of rising you know, powers or illiberal states, like whatever you sort of basket, you want to sort of lump them in. Um, and, and so you see, you know, sort of alternatives to SWIFT, um, where where sort of China and Russia have been working there. Um, you know, it's it's not like uh, Russia has really used Bitcoin to evade sanctions so much as it's uh, just used like, you know, gold and like yuan. Um, and so what Putin is pointing out, I think, or hinting at here uh, is true, even though I would kind of laugh at the first part of his statement and, you know, uh, uh, generally... I don't know how true the, the I don't know, it's the semantics there, but his overall point that there's like this decoupling from like a Western monopoly on payment infrastructure and internet, uh, uh, and now a world where we have sort of competing versions of things uh, from like the BRICS nations, uh, that that's true. Um, 
that's just yeah that, that's sort of my reaction there that's that is a 100 true uh, observation and it's sort of up for us to decide whether or not you know putin's claim about you know uh sanctions violating this principle of the global monetary order you know we collectively as a species determine what those those principles are um and i do think that what we are seeing and what we're on the precipice of is kind of a battle between open monetary networks and open networks permissionless networks and closed networks surveilled networks uh aggregated mind controlled and censorable networks uh and, and you know I, I i kind of hope that uh, open networks like uh sort of prevail and i think they will love it i need to have a hard stop in about six you know five or six minutes we've asked you a bunch of questions and i want to give you the opportunity to direct the conversation for a moment what have we not asked you what are things that are happening right now in the space that are super important and that people should be thinking about or that you have been spending a lot of time thinking about um it's a good question um yeah i'm definitely watching to see uh just like how the market plays out um you know i guess it's just uh uh more of a curiosity and, and less interested in you know less about bitcoin but i am interested to see if there are other insolvencies um and to see you know how the kind of crypto market sort of fares for the next few months uh, but on bitcoin in particular some things to be tracking are the you know the white house uh sort of the biden executive order is chugging along and so we're going to start hearing more about that soon we're going to start seeing you know reports uh that are written and i expect like i mentioned earlier the uh uh sort of two big conversations uh, about you know the environment and national security i think will increase in prevalence in in washington um and and you know those are i guess in my line of work the uh where i sort of foresee you know most of my future time uh uh being spent uh is sort of you know overseeing research and, and having meetings uh with, with staffers and uh sort of working to combat some of the mistruths that are out there, uh, you know, about these two topics. Zell, where can everyone stay up to date with everything you guys are cooking up and working on? Uh, BTCpolicy.org, our website, or BTCpolicy.org, our Twitter, which we is super new. Uh, or you can just like probably follow me on Twitter. Um, I tend to tweet about the stuff we're doing. What's your Twitter address? That's David for- Zell underscore. David Zell underscore. Got it. That's right. Wait, you're not David underscore Zell underscore. No, I am not. Fuck, I need to go get that Bitcoin back. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll send you two. I promise. That was me. Okay. Come on, man. Don't, don't leave me waiting. Guys, if you love uh, anything political, every, the work that David and his team are doing is, is vital for, I think, the future of Bitcoin, especially in the political space. Stay up to date with it. Give them a follow. Stay up to date with all their work. David, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We know you are one of the busiest people out there, so keep fighting the good fight. Thanks, guys. Uh, Enjoyed it. Take care. All right. I just want to remind everyone, tickets for Bitcoin 2023 are on sale. They go up in eight days. I fucking begged for this discount code for you assholes. 10% off using the promo code BMLIVE. Someone please fucking use it. Otherwise, I'm going to look like a jackass. (laughs) 